Gentlemen, by what you did and what you said on your return, you've helped turn this country around. You have helped reinstill faith where there was doubt before. And for what you have done by your faith, you have built up America's faith. This nation and the world will always be in your debt. Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Lefroitis. That was President Nixon in an address to Vietnam POWs on May 24, 1973. This week marks the 43rd anniversary of the beginning of Operation Homecoming, when American POWs held captive Vietnam final return to U.S. soil. Here with us to discuss his captivity is retired Air Force Colonel Lee Ellis. Colonel Ellis was a prisoner for six years in the infamous Hanoi Hilton, and for his service was awarded two silver stars, the Bronze Star with Valor Device, the Purple Heart, and the POW Medal. He lectures on leadership, works as a consultant to Fortune 500 companies, and is the author of Leading with Honor, Leadership Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton, and a forthcoming book, Engage with Honor. Colonel Ellis, welcome. Well, good afternoon, Jonathan. Thank you. Just to go into your history, how did you come to join the U.S. Air Force during such a controversial time and uh, a controversial war? Well, it was just starting to become controversial then. It wasn't so controversial when I joined the Air Force in 1965. But I'd always wanted to fly and always kind of thought of myself as a military guy and a warrior. And when I was in college, I got into Air Force ROTC. When I passed the flying physical, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And so I pursued that and became a fighter pilot. Uh, got my wings in 1966, 53 weeks after I graduated from college. And the war was building up at that particular time, uh, the 66, 67 time frame, 68. And I deployed to the war in the summer of 1967. And how many missions had you had you done over North Vietnam? Well, I had 53 over North Vietnam the day I was shot down, and then I had some more over Laos and uh, doing also doing close air support in South Vietnam. Could you go into the the day, or the moments that you were uh, right before you were captured? Uh, how did how did that how did those events unfold? Yeah, it was on November the seventh of nineteen sixty seven. As I said, I was on my fifty third mission over the north, so I was a pretty experienced guy and flying in the combat areas up there. And I was in the F four Phantom. There two in that time the Air Force had two pilots in there and I was junior birdman in the back seat. Now they have uh, for a long time now they've had navigators and radar intercept officers and um, back there. But in those days we had two pilots and I flew a good bit. But it was uh, four o'clock in the afternoon and we were in North Vietnam and there were some gunners around a ferry that the Ford Air Controller, the fast who worked up there wanted us to come in and take out these anti-aircraft artillery guns and so we did and somewhere in that process of dropping our bombs and pulling off our airplane was hit and it blew into several pieces the airplane started tumbling and uh, I knew that it wasn't flying anymore and I had trained myself when to eject and uh, so I did eject and my partner did too we both uh, got out fairly low the gunners on the ground were shooting. There was a lot of shooting up at our wingman and the Ford Air Controller. Some of them were probably shooting at us, I don't know, but a lot of bullets going around and so on. But we were well-trained. Uh, we knew how to manage that equipment and to do this uh, ejection and parachute landing and so on. 
the downside was the, the downside was that we were captured almost immediately. In fact, my partner was caught. He never did his parachute landing fall. The gunners on the ground actually caught him in the air as he was hitting the ground. And, and myself, I did a uh, parachute landing fall and was on the ground for about two minutes before I was captured. And what was your what was your immediate reaction? You know, up to that point of being captured, uh, I was totally uh, logical, rational, um, planning, thinking, executing, doing everything I could to evade capture, slipping on my chute, uh, trying to steer it to uh, a river nearby and planning how I would get away and all that. After I was on the ground, I pulled out my radio and called for the wingman to start strafing 300 meters north of the river. I was about 200 and I was going to head south to the river. Well, after the war, I saw them, and they said, well, we heard your call for the strafing, but we decided that the, the enemy was too close and that we couldn't shoot that good, so we didn't stray. And I said, that's probably wise. But uh, then they surrounded me with, like I said a minute ago, within a couple of minutes, and uh, they came in. One guy had a, a little English-Vietnamese comic book looking thing and he started yelling out from it hands up hands up no die so i did uh, surrender and they captured me and stripped me down to my jockey shorts that's when the shock hit uh, the fear and the shock and really just out of control you don't know what's going to happen where they're going to shoot you or bayonet you or beat you to death you just don't know you just hang you just hanging on and uh trying to keep your wits about you and when they did capture me and started moving me towards a nearby hamlet, uh, and I thought, well, maybe this, maybe I'm going to be a POW. Maybe I can escape before I get to Hanoi. So, but it was shock. I mean, there's a lot of shock anyway, just jumping out of a F-4 Phantom at 450 miles an hour. There's the wind shock and the air shock and the, you know, the, what it did to my body, you know, snapping my head down and my back and all of us who jumped out of those old, uh, F-4 Phantoms. We had uh, back problems and neck problems for years. So there was shock, and, but I was, they did give me my flight suit back, but I was barefooted, blindfolded, hands were tied, and they put a, a rope around my neck like you'd lead a dog and kind of dragged me along from hamlet to hamlet, moving me towards the uh, truck park where we would eventually catch a truck toward Hanoi. And you were ultimately imprisoned at the Hanoi Hilton what, what yes, came, it took me home? about two weeks to get there, during which time uh, we were bombed and strafed. I caught up with uh, my buddy that I was flying with and two other guys uh, on the way. And uh, But we were bombed and strafed several times, and then uh, the local populace tried to kill us a couple of times. So it was a pretty exciting ride, but we, on the 21st of November, we arrived in Hanoi to the old uh, Hanoi Hilton, which was Wallow Prison. And what was that? reception like how did your how did the captors treat you and the rest of the pow population well the, that, that afternoon i got there sometime maybe one or two o'clock in the afternoon they separated us and put us in little wash houses out in the camp compound where they had kind of a scummy place with a um where the rats ran around and there was a a, a concrete sink with gravity flow water coming in there that and about dark, they came in, and uh, I, mean, I was in leg irons at that point, in handcuffs and uh, blindfolded. They came in and took the leg irons and handcuffs off and blindfolded and told me to wash up and 
take off my flight suit and put on the prison uniform, which was black pajamas with a number on. So that's when I knew that, uh, you know, this this is where I was and probably going to be for a while. Then after dark, maybe 7, 7.30, they, they did bring me something to eat, uh, well, some rice and a piece of fish head, which actually turned out to be pretty nice. I didn't see any more, but that one was pretty good. Uh, they brought me into an interrogation room with the three guys that I'd ridden up with, and uh, it was a... Of course, had no idea what to expect. So here's this camp officer sitting behind a desk, and they got three little stu- four little stools in front of it, so that like little milking stools. So our heads are lower than their heads, which was, I guess, important in their culture. And the the main officer was uh, sitting in the middle, and he had a turnkey on either side, and three or four guards standing behind us. And the the officer put crossed his arms and leaned back. It's like something out of a movie. And he says, and now the fat is in the fire, huh? And, uh, you know, if it hadn't been such a dire situation, I would have laughed in his face and fell on the floor laughing because it was so bizarre, you know, that he used that English-American idiom, uh, the fat is in the fire. Uh, You know, it just was bizarre. But then gave us a little lecture and told us we had to memorize the camp regulations, which basically said we had to do everything they told us to do and we couldn't try to escape and we couldn't communicate. And uh, sent us to a little cell that was six and a half feet by seven feet. Did you, did you think you were going to leave anytime soon? No, uh, not really. Uh, I knew the war wasn't about to be over right then. But knowing how politics goes, I didn't think that President Johnson could be reelected with the war going like it was, and that he would have to find some way to, uh, you know, have a negotiated settlement or win it one way or the other. Uh, it would be the only way he could get elected in the fall of 1968. But he tricked me. In uh, the spring of 1968, he announced he wasn't going to run for a second term. So uh, I knew then we were going to be there for a long time. <laughs> but all I could handle was about a year. I mean, it was cold, and that little six-and-a-half by seven-foot cell, we were isolated. And even though there were rooms around us, they had guards in the hall, and they'd had a communications purge before, just before we got there. So nobody was talking, and uh, and the penalties were pretty stiff if you got caught communicating. So, And they started, we had a, uh, every cell had a, speaker in it, and they were broadcasting to us propaganda two or three times a day, but every afternoon they were telling us that we better repent of our crimes and uh, basically side with them or we're going to be tried for war crimes. When, the, when you and, and the rest of the POWs reunited in, at the Nixon Library in uh, 2013, one of the things that I noticed was the intellect and the sharpness and the, and the very positive attitude um, that that the whole group had. How, how did how did the Vietnam POWs? How did they maintain hope and encouragement in such a positive attitude when everything just seemed so dim? Yeah, that's a good question. I think you have to understand the nature of the crowd that we had there. Uh, of the 560 POWs that came out of Hanoi, there were some more in other parts of Southeast Asia at the end of the war. The total was a little over 600, but of the 560 there, about 
350 of us had been there more than five years, maybe 380 had been there more than five years, and more than 90% of those were aircrew. So most everybody uh, either had a college degree or had two years of college, uh, and we were pretty well, very well screened physically and mentally. You know, we had to pass written exams to become aircrew, and then we were well trained and very disciplined. So, uh, you know, aircrews generally are pretty fast thinkers and problem solvers, but they're also are pretty confident and competitive and positive. They just, you know, you kind of believe you're always going to come out a winner. So that attitude prevailed, uh, especially in our leaders, but in I think down to a, almost to a person. I'm sure there are exceptions, but almost to a person. Uh, we just believed that someday we just had to hang in there and do our duty, and someday we'd walk out. So we just kept believing that uh, day after day, year after year. How, and, how much... Uh, some, I was going to ask how much how much does camaraderie uh, play into it? You know, you see, a lot of times today you'll see terror mm-hmm. groups or rogue governments, you know, capture somebody, uh, you mm-hmm. know, torture them, place them in solitary confinement. Uh, could you or anybody else have done this alone? Very difficult. Uh, very difficult. Ed Alvarez was there for about six months alone. He was the only one, but the the torture treatment hadn't started. It didn't start till about a year after he got there, and he was caught up in that, but not initially. So at first, they really didn't know what to do with the POWs for a few months, and then once we got organized, and somewhere, I think, orders came down from the top to, you know, bend those guys around, get some propaganda out of them, get get military information, whatever you can get out of them. And so that's when they really started to lean on us was in October of 1965. And that's when, uh, well, Colonel Reisner came in in September and Denton and Stockdale came in in August of 65. So they got there and got everybody kind of organized. And then all of a sudden they didn't, the enemy didn't like that military structure, even though it was covert, you know, there's stiff resistance. They started to meet as they started to deploy their, propaganda, extracting propaganda from us. And so uh, that really pulled us together into a more cohesive group. The fact that we had covert communication, we had a formal military organization and uh, kind of united to resist them. So it was really an us against them thing. Uh, and we're a very competitive group, uh, just part of the mentality of being who we were and military people in general, I think, but especially uh, aircrew people, you know, we, we competed against each other uh, before we got shot down, and then we competed to some degree against each other and with each other uh, as POWs, you know. If, if you can last two days, maybe I can last three, you know. It's just uh, a mentality of uh, doing your best and setting high standards, and that really paid off for us. You mentioned... Um the high-ranking officers, uh, James Risner and Jeremiah Denton. Um, in the spring of 67, they created and disseminated the policies, which you talk about, on how, POW, mm-hmm. on how the POW should conduct themselves. It was cleverly titled mm-hmm. with the acronym Back Us. Uh, what was mm-hmm. Back Us? Yeah, uh, we called it Back US or Back Us, either way you want to look at it. Spell the same. Uh, that was an acronym that uh, kind of laid out policy. Stockdale put that out. Uh, Rising had put out some general policies, and Stockdale's policy just went 
more in depth for the situation at the time. So it's more, more like an interpretation or guidelines within the broader policy we've had. And the B stood for uh, don't bow in public because, see, they were making us bow. And, I mean, they would beat us over the head to get us to bow. But bowing in public meant not in front of uh, the press and, you know, outsiders and that sort of thing. Um, U stand, stood for unity, stay united. Uh, B, I'm sorry, the A stood for... Uh, uh, I'll have to think about what that was for a second. B A C K K was don't kiss them goodbye. If anybody gets to go home early, uh, or when we go home, when we get released, you know, we don't have to say good things about them, so don't kiss them goodbye. B A, I shall have to I'll have to think for a second. It'll come to me. But it was just general general policy uh, interpretation how we behave ourselves and operate within the confines of the prison. Uh, but it was just, it was good stuff, and it was easy to remember back then. Uh, but uh, if you give me a second here, I probably can tell you because I just picked up my book here. But uh, it was really good, the, the leadership that they provided to provide simple guidelines that would really bind us together was so, so important. And uh, just... It really held us together and continued to uh, um, something that would last through all those years. The fact that we knew each person knew what we were thinking. Everybody had the same values. Everybody had the same policies. Okay, the A was air, stay off the air, make no recordings for radios and no tapes. Uh, C was crimes, don't admit to any crimes. Uh, people were being tortured to sign confessions, and so we would... Words like crimes or criminals, we just had to avoid those words. K, I said, was don't kiss the enemy goodbye, and then unity over self, stay united, was the U.S. So don't bow in public, uh, stay off the air, don't make tapes for them, uh, don't admit to any crimes, don't kiss them goodbye, and stay united, unity over self. So it's very simple, but very powerful, and it, it, that particular uh, guidance fit right into the situation we're in right at the time, in 67, they started torturing us to make us read on the camp radio, make us read the local uh, communist paper, you know, uh, or to read some propaganda from some American congressman or senator, which became propaganda to us because it was anti-war. Now, we always, we always defended the right of Americans to protest and disagree with the government. So uh, we made it real clear to them that that was what was special about us compared to them. You know, we... Their communism, they didn't allow that. In our country, we did, and that's part of what we were fighting for. But as military guys, we didn't want to be repeating that stuff. You see what I'm saying? Right. You, you write in Leading with Honor that through struggle, um, you need to know yourself. Yeah. In your opinion, how, how does one reach that level of self-realization? Well, I, have, I think it takes a lot of courage. You have to be willing to admit you're not perfect. You have to be willing to look in the mirror in a way that you've probably never looked in the mirror. And it takes uh, takes some deep internal courage to do that, to see yourself as you really are. And in the POW camps, we had a lot of time to reflect. And some of that reflection time was remembering uh, things that we wish we had done differently. You know, like I spent, uh, I spent some time being uh, regretful, I never studied as a student. 
I was lazy. I think I was probably ADD and didn't know it, but it was just so hard for me to study, and I was an athlete, so, you know, I I could absorb the knowledge in class, and my mom was a school teacher, and I read magazines and newspapers, which, you know, for someone who's kind of ADD, that was easy, but uh, I didn't read many books and didn't do a lot of homework. If they gave us ten problems, I'd do four or five and quit and go on to something else. But I regretted that during my POW time, so I learned to really discipline myself to do whatever I was supposed to do and complete it before I stopped. And that's helped me write uh, three books now. I'm on my fourth book, actually, that I would have never been able to do before. So um, that reflection time and being real with myself about uh, what I needed to do to be successful, I needed to be more disciplined, I needed to be more persevering, uh, and that uh, that helped me in the POW camp as a prisoner of war to have that attitude, and it helped me. it's helped me a lot since I've been home. But as a leadership coach and consultant, you know, that's the only way you can grow as a leader and get back to become a better leader is you have to know yourself so you know what to fix and what to, what to do more of, what to do less of, and how to do it. In, in leadership, uh, you also talk about a person's concept of truth mm-hmm. and how that paves the way and how they lead and treat others. Uh, you say this is especially true as the North, Vietn- of the North Vietnamese. Can you elaborate on this and, and tell? You said t- truth, right? Truth. Yeah. Tell us why you know having yeah. a correct concept of truth and, yeah, and why well, ideology is so important. Yeah, it is because see, in their world, in fact, they you know to us, truth was so important, even though we would lie to them because you know you get to. You know what, beat out of you sometimes if you told the truth. Uh, but truth is so important to freedom because every time a lie is told, it undermines our freedom. In the communist world, they told us, and if you go back and study communism, this you'll see this is true, that truth is whatever most benefits the party. That makes it true because if it advances our cause, then it, it has to be right because our party's right and what we believe is right. So, therefore, it's okay to torture you to sign a confession that you bomb churches and hospitals. It's okay because, well, it helps our cause, and therefore it's true, even though you didn't do that. So that was... uh, We see that creeping into our culture today, uh, the end justifies the means mentality. People act like something's true when they know it's not, and they want everybody to believe it's true. You know, the um, during uh, one of the elections, one of the one of the elections, uh, three or four elections ago, one of the uh, party operatives in one state got a got a, a phone bank going to tell everybody that uh, uh, you know the uh, which something which was a complete lie about uh, one of the candidates uh, on election day. And uh, they knew it was a lie. They didn't care. They just wanted to uh, to minimize people going to the polls. You found something that you called the leadership engagement model. And you devote mm-hmm. a lot of time lecturing about leadership and team building. What What is this model and what makes an effective leader of an organization, in your opinion? Well, an effective, the most effective leaders are healthy leaders that have three major components, and then I'll get back to the model because these components are very important to the model. Number one is good character. Uh, they're authentic people. They're healthy people. 
Number two is you have to get results. You have to accomplish a mission. And number three, you have to take care of the people because they're the ones doing the mission. And your good ones especially will leave you if you don't take care of them and you don't help them have a rewarding uh, career by uh, using the help letting them use their talents to the fullest extent and developing them and that sort of thing and caring about them, showing them their value. So character, results, relationships, uh, people are very important. And then is to move into the idea of the leadership engagement model. As a leader, when you engage a problem, you have three alternatives, really. You can try to dominate and bully and control to get what you want. Two, you can withdraw and just, you know, be passive and shut down or go off by yourself, which some leaders do. Instead of making decisions, they'll just withdraw from it and just put it off and put it off. Or thirdly, you can engage it, and it really takes a lot of courage to engage. The biggest thing that I learned in the POW camps uh, probably was about courage and how to do the hard thing and how to do the thing that's maybe going to be painful in the short term, uh, like denying, saying no to the enemy, even though they're going to torture you. Uh, but that applies to leadership. You know, To confront someone takes a lot of courage. To confront them in a respectful way. To, uh, to congratulate for some people to uh, give praise and proper recognition for some people is very difficult. They don't want to do it. Uh, that takes courage. So when problems come up, to engage them and work through them takes courage. It takes a positive attitude. You've got to believe in yourself, and you got you just have to put your fears aside and just go work through it and come out the other side. And if you've done your best to do that, that's the best possible situation you can be in. What we find is that people want to go, they're naturally, by your personality, you'll either try to dominate or you'll withdraw. Or people who dominate, if they can't dominate, they'll withdraw. So learning to engage and work through and sometimes negotiate, you know, sometimes you can't get all you want just to work through it and come up with a reasonable solution. We see this with doctors and hospitals having to negotiate and work through things. You see it with uh, uh, a lot of times now what used to be competing industries have to compete, I mean, have to collaborate. Uh, the world has become much more collaborative. Even though it's more competitive, we're also having to collaborate more. So there the engagement model can really be helpful. You talked earlier about the decline of our culture and our politics. How do how does one lead in government versus sort of a traditional business atmosphere? Is it is it tougher? Do we apply similar principles to both business and uh, and government governmental leadership? Well, there's there's kind of two things you're you're we're talking about. So to be clear, politics is one thing. Government uh, civil service workers are another thing. You know, we've seen the IRS and the in fact, in my new book, I'm writing about the the alphabet soup of government agencies. The the uh, GAO has looked at the uh, the HMS Health and Human HHS Health and Human Services, and that somehow several million hundreds of million dollars of, that they gave to the states is not accounted for, and uh, you know just a lack of accountability in the civil service world, where you almost can't fire somebody. You can't hold somebody accountable. Uh, the, there was a guy in the EPA that was doing porn and several hours a day and had 1,700 uh, pornographic pictures on his government computer, and they couldn't fire him. 
Uh, we've seen this recently with the VA, with these two people that were directors and got somebody fired so they could move to their job, the position uh, back in their hometown kind of thing. So, And they couldn't fire them. It's just it's been so hard to discipline. And we've got between the unions and the government civil service rules, you just cannot, almost cannot hold people accountable in the government. Now, with politics, uh, we as a population don't hold politicians accountable to keep their promises. Everybody just expects, every intelligent person expects politicians to say one thing and do another when they get into office. So um, that's a sad state of affairs, but it's kind of the way uh, it's evolved. It's terrible. Uh, but that's, and people, you know, try to tear other people down in a dishonorable ways. It just goes, uh, it's just crazy. I, I don't think it's healthy for our, for our republic to have uh, some of the things going on that what would normally be honorable people acting in dishonorable ways. And, not, and the sad part is we're really not holding them accountable. The media doesn't hold them accountable for it. They just kind of expect it, and we as voters haven't held them accountable very well. You, you've mentioned on that on several occasions you've you've had to coach executives who were pretty mm-hmm. outstanding in every way, except that they had excess drive. Uh, what, what's wrong yeah. with what's wrong with that concept of excess drive? Well, drive for results mainly. Um, what's wrong with it is you burn people out, you run off good people. Uh, you can do that for a short term when you have a project that really has to get done. You know, I do that myself, but um, I'm, I'm up front with my people. Like, I know we're putting the, we got the pedal to the metal here. I'm driving you, I'm pushing you hard, and we can't do that long. I realize that, but right now we need to meet this goal. But you can't do that over and over again. The problem comes when the people are not recognized and valued. They're not treated as people. They're treated as machines. And people are not machines. They have emotions. They have feelings. They have deep desires. And one of their deepest desires is to feel valued. But when you're just driven like a, you know, machine, you don't feel valued. You know, okay, get another machine in here. And there are actually people that, uh, leaders that think, well, okay, I'm going to burn you as hard as I, I'm going to drive you as hard as I can. And when you're finished, I'll throw you over in the ditch and grab some more people and drive them as hard as I can. Well, you know, in a crisis, maybe you have to do that a little bit, you know, turn around or something. But day to day, uh, you just can't lead people like that. You run good people off, and the world is too competitive right now to run off your good people. The big concern right now of smart companies is how do we get the best talent? And if you have that kind of leader, people don't want to work for a jerk. In terms of leading talent, uh, people, um, mm-hmm. we hear the term failure of imagination uh, to, il- to illustrate and, and understand uh, the failure to understand events and opportunities and crises. We often hear this term invoked um, regarding the, you know, the attack uh, of, of 9-11. Um, how, do, how do organizations, especially in government today with many global crises, exploit the creativity of their personnel? That's a wonderful question. I wish we were asking that question more often. Um, you know, human beings generally, as a rule, like stability, and they like to get in a rut. They like to get their habits and go to work at the same time, go home at the same time, and they like they don't like change. 
the reality is that the world is changing faster and faster. And uh, on 9, 11, 10, 9, I think it was 9, 8, I gave a speech, 9, 8, 11, uh, 9, 8, 01, 9, 8, yeah. I gave a speech and I said, we're no longer really an island nation. We're vulnerable. And I think uh, we found that out three days later, how vulnerable we really are. And we need people thinking about, you know, the best-case scenarios and the worst-case scenarios. We need to have those outliers who are looking. You know, most of us are going to have to operate day-to-day and go do our jobs. But we also need people who are thinking out of the box of the what-ifs and how could this impact us. And you see a lot of the companies now that are doing the best are the ones that are using technology and human intelligence and other things to uh, to get ahead and to have breakthroughs in the way they're operating. I mean, look at what Uber's done uh, to taxi cabs in a lot of cities. You know, they just they changed their mindset. They came out with a new mindset about how do you get around in a big city. And the companies that are thinking out of the box, uh, you see, they're 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 generally doing well. And I think as a nation, uh, we have to start thinking out of the box a little bit more and taking into account the realities. You know, the mindset about the Middle East, uh, I heard uh, uh, the general, four-star Air Force general who was head of the DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, speak a few months ago, and he said, you know, those countries in the Middle East are never going to be the same. I mean, Iran and Iraq, I mean, Iraq and some of those countries are never going to be the same because we put them together kind of arbitrarily after World War One, And, you know, the tribes and the and the different sects in there, they just don't, S-E-C-T-S, sex, they don't fit together the way we put them together. And so now that we have withdrawn our power uh, and they have, you know, their own uh, thing going, it's the world is going to change. And so we have to be willing to change our mindsets and look at things differently, uh, think out of the box. So I, I think what you said is a great idea. We just need to do more of it. Moving to the historical side of things and President Nixon, uh, how crucial mm-hmm. was presidential leadership in bringing the POWs home? Well, I think it was crucial. Um, we'd been there for a long time. One of my cellmates was there eight years. I was only there five and a half, so it was a long war and a long time. And, you know, the North Vietnamese communists were pretty stubborn. Uh, they were sitting at home. They weren't deployed. They were fighting on their home territory. And and for a long time, there wasn't a lot of pain. We went, when uh, President Johnson stopped the bombing in 68, we went uh, over three years without any bombing in Hanoi. So they weren't feeling the pain. And they were just going to hold on and hold on to us forever and ever and ever. And so somehow they had, and the negotiations were really kind of tipped on around in Paris. They really weren't making a lot of progress. And when they did make progress, then then the North Vietnamese would do something or we would do something that the negotiations went downhill. And after that, you know, um, in the May when they, actually at the end of March, when North Vietnamese invaded South Vietnam with three regular divisions in March of 1972, that's what really got our attention. I mean, they had tanks and stuff. They rolled into South Vietnam because we'd been withdrawing our troops. So that's when we started Linebacker 1 up in early first week of May of 72. And then we thought we had a negotiated deal, Kissinger did, in the fall of 72, and that fell apart. 
in November, and that's when uh, between Kissinger and Nixon and the chiefs of staff and defense, they said, okay, we're going to go put it to them. And they came back in with linebacker two with a, with a passion and with a determination to just bomb them until they decided to negotiate peace. And so they had around-the-clock bombing by B-52s and all sorts of airplanes for a couple of weeks, and they ran out of surface-to-air missiles. Uh, they were in sad, sad shape. We probably could have invaded right then and taken over, for not for long, but we could have taken over the capital if we wanted to, and I think they realized that, and so they did agree to peace. And without that bombing and without President Nixon's a uh, courageous decision to go full bore, we might have been sitting up there for many more years. Today marks the 43rd anniversary of the beginning of your journey home. Um, the first flight of POWs came mm -hmm. on February 12th, 1973. Right. You, you were returned home and the, and the next set of flights in March. Uh, can you paint us a picture of those moments when you were released from captivity and finally set foot on American soil? Yeah, uh, we had, uh, emotionally we were flat. We had, most everyone, every one of us had um, constrained our emotions to a very narrow range of up and down. We didn't get up, we didn't get down. We just stayed like a table, flat. We'll, we'll believe it when we see it. Uh, we'll celebrate someday, but we're not celebrating now. We're just going to wait. Plus, we didn't want to give them the pleasure of uh, taking pictures of us celebrating you know, like we were desperate and we just, we we're going to be military guys to the end. So we hung in there and on the day they flew the 141s in to pick us up and they handed us over, uh, it was uh, business as usual, but with a lot of hope. And uh, we started to believe this is really going to happen. That morning they took us down and we turned in our uh, black pajamas or you could take them home with you if you want. I brought some of mine clothes. And uh, they gave us a little uh, gym bag and a pair of slacks and a belt and a shirt and a pair of shoes. Uh, first time we'd had a pair of shoes, we'd had some tire sandals, but first time we'd had real clothes like that. And so we dressed up that morning, and then about lunchtime we got on little shuttle buses, uh, kind of like airport shuttle buses and from the hotel type, and, and drove out to the airport. And they handed us over, we saluted, and got on that 141 and waited until they put about 30 or 40 of us on each one of those, and they had nurses there to check us. And we took off, and the minute we took off, we started stomping the floor, <laughs> uh, yelling, uh, that sort of thing, and then settled down, and we got over international water about, oh, 15, 20 minutes later, and they called that over the intercom, and we started yelling and cheering again. And then we settled down and uh, circulated around the airplane and visited and slapped each other on the back and kissed the nurses two or three, two or three times until we got uh, it's about a two or three hour two hour flight over to the Philippines to Clark Air Base and we landed there and we were absolutely shocked that they had a red carpet and there were people there to greet us. And we just didn't have any idea that would happen. You know, we just thought we'd get off and go to the hospital and that'd be it. And there was a big crowd of people to greet us. So that was pretty exciting. In May of 1973, you and, and the other POWs were invited to the White House uh, for the largest mm -hmm. dinner ever held there. Uh, can, can you describe mm -hmm. that night? Oh, it was great. It had been raining so hard, though, 
that it was like, you know, the ground was squishy, but they had tents, huge tents up that would hold, I don't know, I think there were like uh, 12, 14, 1,200 people there. Um, and it was it was lovely. We went through the White House itself, and uh, I was walking in, and there's Ricardo Montalban, and I didn't know, you know, he'd kind of come along, become popular while I was gone, but he seemed like a nice fellow, and we greeted him, and went in, and there was Red Skelton and John Wayne and uh, those kind of guys. And at my our table, I I was single, and we were allowed to bring one guest, so I took my mom. And at our table was Sammy Davis Jr. So we had a wonderful time. And here's my mom, who grew up, was born in 1909. You know, she lived in the segregated South. Uh, of course, we had African American black people around us all our lives, but that all changed in the 60s. But here's my mom and Sammy Davis Jr. having a time of their lives. They were just like lifelong friends and having a great time together and I was there enjoying it all too of course and uh, probably the highlight of the night you know President Nixon spoke that was a big deal and uh, just really was such a wonderful host for us uh, came around and shook hands and visited and everything Bob Hope was the MC, and uh, I'd say probably the highlight in many ways was uh, uh, when uh, the guy who wrote uh, God Bless America came on stage and Irving let us Berlin. in. Irving Berlin came on stage and let us in that at the end. And that was very special. Colonel Ellis, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, good being with you, Jonathan. It's been a, we had a great time at the Nixon uh, Library there in our, in 2013 at our reunion. That was a wonderful event. And, you know, that video that goes around that you all put out is so great, and people tell me about it all the time, that 13-minute video. And uh, our buddy Quincy Collins and his group singing the uh, POW hymn and uh, being there at the Nixon Library, it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, reunion for us, and we appreciate it. It was the most memorable night I worked at at the library. Yeah. Thank you yeah, so much. Well, thank you, Jonathan. God bless. You too. Thank you for joining us. For news and information about the life and legacy of President Nixon, please visit us at nixonfoundation.org. For the Richard Nixon Foundation, I'm Jonathan Mavroidis signing off.